Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, Daniel Hanley, and joining me on the other line, now that he's back from his tryst with a congressman's aide in an alleyway, it's John McMahon. Well, I thank you, Daniel. That tryst did not turn out how I had hoped, but we'll get into that. We'll get we into that. We will definitely get into it. <laughs> can't, can't win them all. You know, it happens to the best of us. <laughs> don't think there's anything best to any no. mention of this tryst with the uh, congressman's aide. No, But don't worry, he'll be a senator one day. You can be a fail son to be a senator. Very you can clearly. be a, he can be your boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> it's like wild advice. Oh uh, my god. Elizabeth's John, what mom slash Handler is... We're, we'll get into it. We'll, we'll get, get into, into it. it. John, what are we here to talk about? We're here to talk about American Season 2, Episode 2, Cardinal directed by Daniel Sackheim and written by Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields. Second episode in a row written by those two showrunners. And Daniel, what would be the summary? The episode summary from IMDb tells us that as Philip investigates the fallout from the last operation, Elizabeth sticks close to home, concerned for her family until she gets a mysterious distress signal. Meanwhile, a walk-in arrives at the Residentura, providing both Nina and Stan with unique opportunities. Pretty good. I don't know if this is communicated by the summary itself, but one thing that I think we both noted about this episode is that it perhaps plays a quite different structural or narrative role than the first episode of the season. So how did you respond to the kind of structural uh, situation of this episode? Yeah, this felt like a if if the first episode is just like smack you in the face with – um, a bunch of different, very big, very intense things that are happening. This episode in many ways felt like a bit of a slowdown, but yes. like there's still a lot going on, but it's more of an unfolding of the layers of things that were introduced to us last episode than like a whole ton of new things. I would agree with that. And there's a way in which I see this episode raising a lot of the, I mean, you use the phrase and when we were prepping this episode, the kind of meaning of what it is Philip and Elizabeth are doing and what the show is attempting to express Mm -hmm. that. And I think that that's true. And that that's being set up in this episode is a way to get our uh, intellects moving about the show as we deep dive further into season two. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that I, well, I said it, so <laughs> you said it, so you thought that's correct. See, I would just like the listeners to know that Danielle and I are ninety something percent of the time not just making things up for content, but saying things we actually believe. I would say our ratio of that is higher than the average podcast of stuff we actually think versus just doing it for the content. I think that's right because we're also well, not doing it for the content. That's true. That's. that's I mean, I'm making you do Loki for the content. I was going to say, Americans are not doing for the content. Our ratio was better a couple weeks ago, and it's gone down since then. I wonder what the ratio will be, though. Like you are saying things that are true to yourself in the Loki episodes too. Which listeners, if you're not listening to them, they're dropping in the same feed, but they're dropping on Tuesdays, and they are a real treat because I get to take the reins a little bit which is the position I'd like to be in. But <laughs> because I've not seen the Americans and John has, it's it's like a, a, a slightly different dynamic than we get in these episodes. Yeah, exactly. And Highly the, recommend. 
I always appreciate everything about Danielle, but I especially appreciate her willingness to do a hundred years of the Americans. <laughs> now that I've experienced on the Loki episodes, the position of being the novice yeah. uh, in that particular show. I think like the one big difference, I was thinking about this after we recorded our last episode. Um, one of the segments we have on the, those episodes, like Marvel splaining and like, you can't American explain to me because the whole gimmick here is that like, this is a spy show. So like, it's like the puzzle box. You can't like, there isn't anything for you to, to, to Marvel explain to me. That's true. That's true. I mean, cause the, the reference is not a self-contained imagined universe, exactly. but the cold war, right? right? That's, that's the reference. That's right. the universe in which the show exists. Yeah. Anyway, that's a little detour, uh, yeah. to again, doing this for us. <laughs> Only for us. <laughs> so are we going to comment on the nature of what we're doing while we're doing it instead of actually doing it? Yes, we are. And that's why we're here. And that's why you're listening. It's literally our Presumably. comfort zone and we love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if I can, if I can segue us. Yes, uh, please. That broader Cold War universe is, I think, saturating one or maybe multiple particular relationships in this episode. And I think we want to, as we have been doing frequently with these Americans episodes, think about this big discussion in terms of characters or relationships. Absolutely. So let's start perhaps with Fred, who we saw briefly as the person who does the brush pass with Philip uh, and Philip in place of Emmett in episode one, but now Philip goes in full dirtbag Philip uh, style, dirt <laughs> style wow. to go. He looks surprisingly good for being dirtbag Philip. Disagree. Um, <laughs> agree to disagree. And so he goes to check on Fred and is like, is Fred actually the source of the danger? Did Fred have something to do with the murders yeah. of Emma and Leanne and Amelia? So, Danielle, how did you see the questions being raised by that particular interaction or the meaning questions that that interaction is raising for us as audience members? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, it does, it does, it functions in a couple of different ways. And the first is that it reminds us just, like, how good and thorough Philip and Elizabeth are at this job, right? Like, there is, there's a lot that Philip is checking. We get like a really intense sort of like experience with him in, in Fred's apartment. So that's like in the first place, like to the extent that Stan is bad at his job, like Philip is good at his, right. Um, But I think also the thing that was really striking about, um, about all of this is, or about sort of like Philip being in Fred's apartment and sort of going through his stuff is just like, we get, it unpeels all of these different layers to the Fred Emmett relationship. Correct. Yeah. Um, and, and then like potentially has all of these other implications. Yeah. And implications for Philip, right? Exactly. Philip is bound to a certain path dependence of this new exactly. agent handler relationship with Fred as a result of the unpacking of the relationship with Emmett that you just talked about. Yeah. And I think like it's both that and something that you had said when we were talking about this a little bit earlier before we started recording is, is just like 
the implications that it has for Philip is that it, one of them is that he can't proceed in the way that he normally would would do so to to like to handle this guy um, because of the way that Fred and Emmett's relationship existed. It, it alters the way that Philip has to now approach this, and it even alters like how Philip engages when he's tied up after he gets electrocuted, which like I was very stressed out about. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's actually useful to contrast this with Clark and Martha. Yeah. In however limited amount of time Philip has spent with Fred, Fred has seen infinitely more of actual Philip than Martha has ever seen of actual Philip, even yeah. though they are actually technically married. I can't. And, <laughs> you know, this is happening in several ways, right? To your point that we see so many different emotional registers or responses from Matthew Reese's Philip while he's tied up, right? We yeah. see panic, we see resignation, we see an attempt to, like, continue being the spy, we yeah. see an attempt to assert control, we see an attempt to sympathize, right? We see so many different things and ways that he is relating to Fred. And also we see from Philip, he has to disclose a lot about himself, a lot about how the KGB operates, yep. a lot about he, the fact that he has a son, yep. which Emmett, or excuse, which Emmett, of course, had told uh, Fred about. And now because of that, Philip has to tell Fred about. On the one hand, this is like a, a, a spy's, Philip's behavior is like, like a spy's version of flailing, but it's also not flailing, right? Like we saw Philip and Elizabeth flailing at the end of last season. Like Mm -hmm. we saw them Mm -hmm. all over the place um, making like, you know, a series of bad decisions that were influenced by other things too. And Philip here is also like, there's a, there's a flailing uh, capacity to what's happening, like sort of grasping for straws, like trying to figure out one of these ways into this guy. Yeah. Um, and then it's it's just really interesting that he says to Emmett in the last episode, we don't we don't involve our kids in this. Yes. And at each step of the way, the kids are are more and more and more involved. Mm-hmm. And. Elizabeth is freaking him out about that in some ways more than Philip is. Totally. You know, and, and Philip is also commenting on what he's doing to Fred. He yeah. tells Fred, yeah. I am not supposed to do this. Emmett was not supposed to do this. You and Emmett had a closer relationship than any other agent yeah. uh, you know, I know of, all of these ways. And of course, Philip is trying to save his life, to achieve the mission, to protect uh, Elizabeth and the kids and so on and so forth. But he's also doing that as uh, playing a game with this person that he would like to become his agent. Yeah. And, and like, right. So on the one, uh, in the first place, there's the like survive this interaction, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. there's like, there's always that, that like next layer of like, not just survive the interaction, but also foster this relationship. Yes. So that, so that like we can go forward with this. Right. And Philip thinks that those two things are connected. And within the episode, he's pretty much correct about that. Yeah. And I think like, again, I I come back to this idea that like, this is Philip being good at his job because like, he has to be able to, in this moment of panic, like not only figure out how to read Fred, which like takes a minute, but he does figure it it out. It does. He's shook by the way that Fred is reacting to him. Yeah. And 
But he does figure it out. Yes. He does. He finds that opening and wedges himself in. And then it like, that's where we see that the like survival, uh, like Philip's physical survival and the survival of the like overarching mission yeah. are, are like deeply intertwined. Yes. Which is another way of the show depicting the emotional and survival stakes of the KGB as it relates to the individual lives, which are not actually that individuated of Philip and Elizabeth. Yeah. I think that that's exactly right. And that's how I was reading sort of like this dynamic and the sort of what was happening with, with Fred. There's something that Fred says where this is, I believe after he has untied Philip, And Fred talks about how, like, most people live their lives. They never accomplish anything. They don't have any kind of, like, broader pursuit. As kind of the the unasked for explanation of why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. And why he pursued such a close relationship with Emmett. as, As if he needed to have that personal relationship with Emmett in order for the life project that he pursues to be that of passing along top secret information about something related to a propeller to the KGB. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like, but, but I guess like, what is the meaning that we're supposed to understand Fred to experience as a result of spying on behalf of the KGB? What he gives is the explanation for why he's doing what he's doing, but we only get basically this one line about that explicitly. Of course, his broader kind of emotional response is a somewhat different story. Yeah, and I I wonder if, like, it actually is about the broader emotional response, and that's maybe what we're supposed to take away from it, that, like, all of this, and, like, and I think your contrast with Martha and Clark is, is, like, is productive here, because why do we do any of the things we do? (laughs) The the best reason, the, the, like, best answer to that is, like, to foster these relationships with other people, right? And then the thing that, that Fred is doing is, like, secondary to that fostering. I think that's the takeaway we're supposed to get, you know. I would agree with that. And that fits with the other things we've identified about how Philip's relating to Fred. And it also identifies with the fact that both historically and also in the universe of the show, it's stated, it's known that KGB, the CIA, the spy agencies pursue essentially lonely people. Yeah, and, and weaponize that loneliness or weaponize some kind of isolation in pursuit of the broader cause. And the way that Philip is, to your point from earlier, seeking out all these different ways to connect to yeah. Fred is his spy experience recognition of that is the thing that will save my life and also advance the mission. It's telling that in talking about these episodes, we keep coming back to the different like interpersonal dynamics, right? Like that that's the thing that we're consistently coming back to. And like your point about loneliness is, is really well taken in the Israeli spy novels that I read. Like that's also like, that's the tactic, right? Like it's, it's not confined to the KGB or the CIA, right? Like, which I don't think that that's what you're saying, but like it is a dynamic through which you can identify someone who might be more open to the kind of work that's necessary because people crave human connection. I don't know. It's like the Aristotle of it all. (laughs) 
okay, that's wasn't expecting that <laughs> pass that drive by through the cave, but you know, do do what we can. I love a drive by Aristotle. In <laughs> There's. I just want to emphasize that the Philip is good at his job. We see, of course, through all the spycraft that is depicted yes. in this well, epi- in this par- part of the episode. There is the ta- there's the surveilling, there is the tailing, there is the going through the house, and Philip is really, really good at all of this to the extent that he recognizes the floorboard that he accidentally steps on has some something wrong yeah. with it and that that's how he discovers this lockbox. And then he maybe is not bad at his job, but fails to sense, recognize, see, be skeptical of the lockbox and gets himself electrocuted for the for the cost of it. Yeah, and I would say, like, on a scale of not spy normal person to spy, Philip was, like, operating at not spy normal person, because I also wouldn't have been, like, this box could be, like, electrically charged or whatever, like, but I was waiting for something to happen, right? And I think that's sort of, like, where Philip was, so, like, yes, that is a moment where he was not great at his job. Yeah, I thought you were going to go with on a scale of stand to you know, <laughs> pick your contrast of who's really good at their job. Oh. Philip's like closer to the other non-stand end. I mean, yes, on a scale of stand to Elizabeth, Philip is closer <laughs> to Elizabeth than Stan. Hundred percent. But Stan's like the bottom of the barrel here. Although he's like <laughs> not terrible at his job in this episode. Yeah, and I think we will con- continue to see him being not quite as terrible. In season two. Okay. I'm open to it. Not that he's particularly <laughs> successful all the time. Um, oh, all right. God. So we get another key relationship that is depicted through spending more time inside the Residentura itself yeah. than maybe any other episode we have watched thus far for yeah. the podcast. And that's the relationship between Nina and Arcadi, which... Plot-wise, has a couple different elements to it. There's them strategizing about Stan. Right. There is Arcadi playing for Nina audio that was uh, received through the pen that Martha hid in Gad's office, which essentially confirms Nina's suspicion that it was, in fact, Stan who yeah. murdered Vlad. There is Nina being in the safe house. There's Nina figuring out how much he, she can tell Stan about the walk-in in consultation with Arcadi. There's the walk-in itself. There's just a lot happening in the resident aura. Agree. I felt like Nina told Stan too much. <laughs> like he, Stan is bad at his job, but he figured it out. So I feel like it was too much, but yeah. And then my question is, what was Nina, like, technically authorized to disclose? Yeah. And there's a way in which it seems like Arcadi is so skeptical of the walk-in, and they think so little that this could be something that provides valuable intelligence for them, that they are seemingly willing to, at least for now, sacrifice yes. the walk-in. Um, that was my read of the situation also, that, like... Dameron is his name for the sake of Nina and Stan. Yeah, that was my read of it, too, that, like, the walk-in is actually, like, not a valuable asset, or at least Arcadi has has... I mean, and I think we see that... In a couple of different ways. One, he lets Nina tell Stan something, even if sure. she tells it maybe tells him more or less whatever it was. But also that like he doesn't 
engage with him. He doesn't go in the room. If this is a valuable asset, he's in that room. Right. And so, of course, they're worried that this is a plant or a double agent or something, especially as Nina, as, as Akadi is, you know, helping run the double or triple agent. I can't keep track. Unclear. That is, that is Nina. Um, I think that, I think she's a triple agent if I have it correct. But anyway, there's. Yeah. The, the way in which they filmed Arkady talking oh with Dameron in the, you know, the interrogation room or whatever was just so funny to me. It's a, it's an incredibly tight close up on our fave oh Lev Horn. <laughs> and he is exceedingly close to the intercom. And as if he was more than a inch and a half or a few centimeters, let's be metric about it, away from the intercom, then Dameron would not hear him at all. It's just hilarious to me. But I think it's conveying that skepticism that you point out Arkady has with regards to Dameron the walk-in. Yeah, and I think it's like both that skepticism and also like I do get the sense in this episode, and I've gotten it before, but more so in this episode, that Arkady wants this to work with Nina because like he does have a soft spot for her. Yes. And yes. so like he wants the he wants to demonstrate whether to himself or to like others mm-hmm. eventually mm-hmm. that like this is actually a productive triple agent running, right? Like it's a really important point um that's worth emphasizing the extent to which he's willing to interpret events so as to uphold Nina's ability to salvage her life, her career, her standing in the KGB, and whatnot. Yeah, which, like, then I think brings us to Nina's report of of the interaction with Stan. And I was – so this is the first report we get from Nina. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really struck by – the intense juxtaposition of the sort of officialness of the report. Um, I do love a typewriter. The officialness of the report against the sort of, and like the coldness of it. Yeah. And her description against maybe real, maybe fake, but at least like uh, intensely emotional versions of emotional intensity with it, which was, it just like, striking against the sort of official language of the report. Yeah. There's, it's a interesting directorial choice of how they do that. Yeah. It's a little more bells and whistly than I would perhaps ideally want out of the Americans. Cause there's, there's also the, there's the Nina typing. We see the Cyrillic appearing in glimpses yeah. as she's typing. The music is way more melodramatic than they're used than they're usually scoring the Americans with, even though at times the score can indeed be mm-hmm. melodramatic, but it's extra melodrama here. And yet the it's that becomes very effective at presenting us with that precise contrast or juxtaposition that you're identifying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I'm with you though. Like it's a little bit too murder. She wrote for the yes, Americans. Yes, that's the right way to put it. That's the right way to put it. <laughs> I think that's what sure. you're searching for. Yeah, and you know. It's interesting that we get her writing this report, and the last thing we see is just her walking into Arkady's office yeah, and giving it to with him. Report. We don't actually see the follow-up conversation that they have about it. Yeah, and I wonder, like, I'm interested to see, like, ha- how these reports play 
Right. Like, I'm interested to see what happens with them. There's a lot that I can't say there. <laughs> Great. We love it. We love uh, uh, hitting on a point that you can't talk about. Exactly. Um, anything else about Nina and Arcadi here that, that you wanted to get out? I don't think so. I think we have one more, the perhaps major character of <laughs> the Americans to discuss here in the main discussion. And that is Elizabeth expressing even more paranoia than the paranoia, perhaps all justified paranoia, you identified her engaging in in last week's episode. This episode is just like every scene with Elizabeth is like a heightening of the the scene last episode where she's like locking all the windows. Like she's worried about the, she's, you know, worried about the workers on the street. She's worried about like a car pulling by as she's getting the, getting the paper. She's just outside standing there. Like. That's what I especially wanted to talk about. Yeah. We get two shots of her just standing outside. One, she's getting the newspaper. The other, she's just like literally out in the like little courtyard driveway situation. We've never seen her just standing there looking outside before. And secondly, it's filmed from a very strange angle, particularly the second shot. Yes. It's it's like above and to the side at a diagonal to her. And that's giving very, and I know we'll get to this later in the episode, very surveillance vibes. Very surveillance vibes. Doing the surveilling, being surveilled. And of course, that's a, that's an aesthetic expression that they have used before in many different ways. I'm thinking back to, I think it's episode two or three mm-hmm. um, back in back in season one when they're in quote unquote Philadelphia. But there's a unique version of it that Elizabeth gets in the way that she's shot in those yeah. scenes. No, and I think like the surveillance vibes are 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 there, and the camera angles are only perpetuating them and like intensifying yeah. them. Yeah, and even and maybe it's not surveillance vibes, but it's B horror movie vibes <laughs> in the camera angle that's being used, or or not necessarily even B horror movie, but one could picture an Alfred Hitchcock, like maybe Hitchcock filmed somebody that way in one of his many 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 movies, right? Like yeah. that I could see. Like an off-kilter, above and a little bit behind camera angle. Yeah. To, like, to try to, like, throw the perspective off a bit. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And do, you have a g- favorite, do you have a favorite Hitchcock movie, Daniel? I don't, like, I don't love Hitchcock. I'm, like, still pretty afraid of the birds. Okay. Um, There are these, there's a nest of birds up in the window across from my bedroom, like, which is the attic of the the house next to me. Got your eye on them. I'm just worried about them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, are they going to swarm me? I think you're probably safe. Do you have a favorite Hitchcock movie? Vertigo. seen it all right well next time you come to plattsburgh we'll 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 go see whatever mcu movie is playing at the world's greatest independently owned and operated theater and then we'll do a double feature we'll watch vertigo 
I, you know, it's in, in a way, Vertigo is one of the reasons that I am on this podcast. Like that was the huh. I had a I had a humanities class in high school, which I was very like privileged to be able to have. And we watched Vertigo, and it was a team talk class, and it was that was the moment where my eyes and brain and aesthetic affective experience were opened to like the possibility of deeply interpreting film and like fleet and wig dollar were smarter about it than I am even at this point in my life. But like, that was like the er moment of, Oh, huh. there's so much more, so many more ways to engage with film in this case or in that case. And now you know, TV here with us. I love that. I mean, I think that, it's like touching that it's that it's vertigo and it's a high school class. There is like a version of me that wants to do like political theory of like pop culture or pop like yeah. movies, um, like a course, which or maybe it's just like political theory and film. And it's mostly just like having my students do a lot of what we do on here. Yeah. <laughs> the sign them some episodes here, students. This is like the, this is the A plus is, you know, <laughs> and the student with the best in the class could still be a guest. guest. No. Of course. We gotta, we gotta like up the, the racketness of all this. Yeah. All right. I, I, I apologize for the Hitchcock digression. No, we, we love ta- it. We're, we're talking about Elizabeth and paranoia and camera shots and camera angles. Well, and I think like this is directly connected right to like her relationship with the kids which is what the big thing that she is most paranoid about in this episode. She's paranoid about like having been made, but she's also paranoid about like what will happen to the children. And I think it's interesting because, you know, she is like afraid for them. And maybe the stakes are, I mean, like we saw the stakes ratchet up all, all throughout the last season. So maybe the stakes are higher now than they were before, but like, They've always been the kids of spies. And I, you have a good interpretation of this line, so I'm going to throw this to you. Great. But at the very end of the episode, Elizabeth says something to Philip to the effect of, you know, I know that what we have done has put us in danger. I always thought, though, that the kids were safe or the kids were out of remove for that. I forget exactly what she said. But implying that there was a relative safety that yeah. the kids experienced from her perspective when, like, that's just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like that's just factually wrong. Well, and I think like my interpretation of this is that Elizabeth until this point, like has not been a good mother. Like she's a good spy, but I don't think she's fully internalized the fact that these are her kids. Yeah. We see her starting to like literally realize it at, at the end of last season where she starts to see that like it's possible she won't come back from this mission because they think that with the with the colonel like with everything right but elizabeth is not a good mother and she i don't think knows how to be a mother and so this is a i think we're seeing her like having to deal with or being confronted with the fact that like actually it's not just the mission like in the immediate, like in her immediate presence are these two human beings that she is responsible for. Like that's what motherhood is. Yeah. And I mean, and even the places where she does do some of that mothering, it's always tinged with the violence or tinged with the missionness of it all or tinged with, again, like talking about what the camera is doing. I'm thinking back to the conversation we had in one of the early episodes of, of season one, it's episode two or three again, where she pierces Paige's ear 
like herself <laughs> and there's like the drop of blood that oh falls onto the pillowcase yeah. <laughs> and i'm like here's a moment of like mother daughter bonding creatives behind the show have decided to depict as blood on the like safety of one's bed of yeah one's where one sleeps at night so yeah no i think that 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 is insightful and like the connection to like the idea that her her the care work that she's doing is always tinged with violence I think is, is something that we see like coming back again and again. And I would also say that like the scene where Elizabeth has, um, she's received this distress signal. So she needs to go check it out. She has this interaction with Lucia, right? The Nicaraguan spy spy. I was going to say revolutionary. And I was like, well, I guess she's not probably a also a revolutionary. Yeah. Right? Um, maybe, but maybe then, she was like in the Sandinistas and like distinguished yeah. herself. And that's why she got sent to DC to spy. Yeah. So like the interaction with Lucia, the Nicaraguan spy is like so much more, care work is so much more present. Like Elizabeth is taking care of her. She's, she goes and gets her food. She tells her what to do. She helps like with the, the aide who's passed out, right? Like she's doing all of these things, which are also tinged with violence in the, in a similar way. But I think like there is more, she's more careful in this because like, it's part of the mission, right? Like, And it's closer to her own experience, exactly. right? Lucia's experience is closer to Elizabeth's than Paige's experience is as close to Elizabeth's experience. Yeah, and it, it makes me wonder that, like, I wonder if part of Paige's heightened suspicion and her, um, just, like, her orientation vis-a-vis Elizabeth, right, is in part because what Paige desires from a mother is not what, and what maybe she sees on TV or sees her friends getting is not what she ever receives. Yeah. And Elizabeth is, I think, grappling with some of this. Mm -hmm. One thing that I think is notable in this episode is that her and Philip have a very brief conversation in the back office at the travel agency over who is going to go down to Chesapeake to investigate. Yeah. And Philip is like, I'll do it. You stay with the kids. And unlike season one, where that argument over who is going to do what mission takes up several scenes in the last final episode or final two episodes, yeah. she just accepts that on the you know immediately. She is either having like a good time with her kids playing life, <laughs> the game of life, and don't worry, we'll get to that more. We will plus. get to it. Fane's excitement over going to the movies when of course it's just a cover for her to go check on Lucia. And then like to your point of the kids in danger, she's just sending the kids to the movie. Exactly. Theaters. Like I, I just like I get that it's the eighties, but like yeah, but she's literally this whole episode been worried about them, been yeah. like, and and has repeated multiple times, "I'm going to stay with the kids. I'm going to stay with the kids." And we've never heard her say, "I'm going to stay with the kids." Ever, she literally tries to pawn the kids off on Philip in <laughs> or the, the end of the last season. Everyone, stand she's like, "Oh yeah, let's go to the movies." And then, she, she, like, and I think this is the other piece of it where. She doesn't pick up on just how suspicious Paige is. Exactly. And Paige is suspicious in the car when she's like, sorry, guys, I just remembered I have to do this thing for dad. And Paige is like, it's you see Paige's out. face it's, be like, what the you literally you said about? we should go to the movies. Like, you said we should do this. Yeah. 
Yeah. You got the phone call. I don't understand what she was suspicious then about this, like, all of a sudden, let's go to the movies. We can make the showing of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. And then is more suspicious when Elizabeth is like, got to drop you off and go run and file some reports. Oh, my. Ticket. Uh... Ticket to the Ticket discrepancies. Who even knows? Love, know. The thing is, it doesn't matter, right? Elizabeth, you know, is just making this up on the fly, and it's so transparently not. Yeah, not what's happening? Uh, but it, but like just to maybe to draw this discussion to this part of the discussion to to a close a bit, it is interesting the sort of like tension that Elizabeth has with her children and the way in which the children are being now like folded into these missions and also like the challenge that is posed to Philip with regard to, and like the sort of like psychological challenge, but also the like Mm -hmm. literal challenge, like Mm -hmm. of like, okay, do I, do I open up about this? Do I bring, do I bring my kids more into this? Yeah. Because that seems to be what Fred needs. Like the, the kids seem to be this like, maybe this is a terrible way to talk about it, but like this affective object object Mm -hmm. that like much of the, the circulation is, is occurring around and through. Yeah. A terrible way to put it. That's an incredible way to put it. That's (laughs) a journey into the cave that I want to have a hundred times out of 10. Like that is, that's the way to do it. Um, (laughs) Can we talk about this scene with Lucia, the Nicaraguan spy a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's one dimension of it in which Elizabeth is operating in a kind of mothering mm-hmm. mode towards Lucia. But I think there's a additional, and it's not an either or, but a both and, of course, where of she course. is <laughs> <laughs> where she is in that moment being the kind of handler that Claudia never was for her. Yeah. Right. So there's like a what yeah. is the contrast that Elizabeth is presumably subconsciously drawing yeah. with Claudia. And like granted, maybe if Elizabeth was brand new in the US and baby spy, maybe Claudia would relate to her differently. Like I'm willing to give Claudia more credit than you are, as we've established. Yes. But you know, here is Elizabeth handling a young woman who is an agent. And so I think it's inevitable that she is not doing what she thinks Claudia would do. I Claudia would, would it, send her back. Claudia would send Lucia back to Nicola. Well, I would take it a step farther and say that it's almost as though Claudia was treating Elizabeth as though she was, she had just mm-hmm. gotten there, yeah. right? Like that she didn't know, know the From ropes. Elizabeth's perspective. From Elizabeth's yeah. perspective. Yeah. Not from Claudia's, but from Elizabeth's perspective. And that just adds to Elizabeth is doing what Claudia didn't do. She's like, I wouldn't say coddling, but she's being mm-hmm. kind. Right. There's a kindness to the way in which Elizabeth engages with Lucia that like is kind of absent from her relationship with Paige. I would, I would say, right. Mm -hmm. Like that that's part of the contrast, but there's a kindness that I think Elizabeth like desired from Claudia that she never got. And that I think I, my sort of read on it is that Elizabeth's read on Claudia is that kindness is for newbies and like, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. like that's not, that's not how this works. This is a brilliant explication of the scene, (laughs) I must say, by you. It's Um, off the dome. And I'm impressed as usual. And (laughs) I mean, even to Elizabeth saying, 
your revolution is beautiful. Oh. Call me anytime. Yeah. Like, and it, I think I'll she drop actually, my kids off at the movies. <laughs> right. And, and like, fuck them. I'm going to come and, you know, help you. Um, Here's a candy bar. Fuck them kids. <laughs> yeah. um, no eggs Florentine for this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think she means oh that. And I think it's also a ploy to make sure Lucia is like, following her directions which are given very kindly at the same time yeah yeah i also would like to highlight danielle you caught what lucia's cover story is that she's a like congressional aide no 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 lucia herself her cover so she is she is like trying to recruit a congressional aide to a congressperson that's on the intelligence committee yes Lucia is a grad student, is presenting herself oh, as yes, a grad I did. student I, in, political in political science. science. I was like, I feel seen. We can be spies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, just- no, it's the exact opposite of we can be spies. We are so not spies <laughs> that that is a safe cover. <laughs> oh, I was it's like. A great cover story. Uh, I. I listened to a lot of David Bowie yesterday, so great, I've got like <laughs> just like David Bowie, Harry Styles, David Bowie, Harry Styles, which it's a I good like, life. honestly, it's, a good it's life. like it's in the same bucket for me, just like ethereal, like pop pixie rock. <laughs> okay, I support Harry Styles and your fandom of Harry Styles. That's a bridge too far for me. Okay, or many bridges. I mean, like they, one or several. I feel bridges. like they both have a lot of like. Sparkly jumpsuits. Yes, like definitely the extent to which they are challenging conventional notions of masculinity. Yeah. Yes, I'm. I'm definitely with you there. Yeah, I mean, like, listen, we'll get into this later. In in, I enjoy Harry Styles' music. Yeah, it pales in comparison to 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 the god David Bowie. I agree with that. I agree okay. with that. But I just okay. like they're in the same bucket of like kind of music to me. Mm, like they're in, they're in a different bucket. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean and 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 when Harry Styles starts like writing brilliant trippy space operas, <laughs> then we can have this conversation again. I don't know. You don't think cocaine side boob <laughs> choker with a sea view is brilliant? I mean in its own way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, as you can see, I've also been listening to a lot of Harry Styles, but I was thinking, like, we can be spies, like, we can be heroes. (laughs) (laughs) Just for one day. (laughs) Yeah, literally just for one day. (laughs) Yeah, I would blow my cover as a spy so quickly, I would be too suspicious of everything around me. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a that's a both and that you don't want actually. It's no. both incredibly incapable as I would be as a spy and exceedingly suspicious. That combo is oh not going to work. So not work. terrible. But yeah, Lucia's cover story is I I felt seen. So <laughs> I actually think that's a great place to wrap up this main discussion. I, I think so. Amazing. I think I think we wrapped it up a couple minutes ago in actuality. Which I'm here for. Do you mean when I started yelling about David Bowie and Harry Styles? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Let's get into borrowed nostalgia of the unremembered 80s. You know who was listening to some David Bowie in the unremembered 80s? 
our friend Oleg. We're oh, going to have definitely. a lot more to say about Oleg, but his bar nostalgia moment is when he tells Nina that he listens to a lot of new wave. Yeah. He would like to fuck Blondie and he loves to go dance in like eighties dance clubs. So <laughs> Oleg really 80s. living <laughs> his full life of living nostalgia for the eighties that he's experiencing. Well, yeah, because like I I suspect that like America in the eighties is much more sparkly than Russia. <laughs> like, oh, abs- absolutely. Um, not quite the home of New Wave. I mean, like you should have tried to get to London, my guy. But not not a bad alternative. They're not as friendly to the to the communists in the residentura there. <laughs> <laughs> Probably true. Oh my god, I did like Oleg's. Uh, blondie moment though I appreciated that yeah I was like and, and Nina of course with the comeback of like oh so you only like blondes and, <laughs> and Oleg's like don't worry it's like more more just wait yeah <laughs> um other bar nostalgia hold I, my vodka said Oleg <laughs> oh, sorry that's yeah. like several beats too late but I had no to I that. love it I love it I love it someone who was not saying hold my vodka because they were <laughs> sick in bed um is that a, is that a transition yes definitely. <laughs> is martha and i just feel like martha's like morning routine outfit like the the like overly frumpy nightgown robe and the curlers in her hair it's just like oh my god it just like smacked me in the face with the 80s yeah and this we might as well say it here because i don't think we have a chance elsewhere uh, the show is very obviously, but meaningfully paralleling. Elizabeth is making breakfast yeah. for the <laughs> kids, and Clark is making breakfast for Martha and her curlers. Yeah, so I just, like, also, even the breakfast felt 80s. <laughs> there's, there's, look, I enjoyed OJ back in my day, but, like, there's, a, there's an emphasis on the OJ that feels very, like, Oh, fruit. We should do that. I feel like the 80s had a lot of, like, juicers. I feel like my grandparents mm. had a juicer in the 80s okay. that, like, no one knew how to use. Okay. Like, that that idea of, like, fresh-squeezed <laughs> orange juice, like, feels like an 80s thing. Mm. Okay. Like, I can remember, like, this – it's, like, an orange container. Like, the, the thing itself is orange, and it has, like, a plastic top, and the oranges rotate – it was like in my grandparents' kitchen. Now that you say that, there's so many like juicers in Prestige TV. Like there's Dexter, like <laughs> likes himself know. some juice. <laughs> Jimmy slash Saul and Kim and Better Call Saul love themselves some fresh squeezed juice from the juicer. So there's a lot of it happening. So that's probably enough about juicers, Danielle on on TV. I mean, we probably could talk about juicers for forever, but yeah, maybe it's time to move on. Do you think that Stan and his bros will drink some juice on their bachelor party trip? You mean the most 80s of all bachelor party trip (laughs) suggestions? Like, should we go to Montreal or a dude ranch? Dude ranch is like... Maybe it's because I spent a lot of my childhood watching Hey Dude. That's exactly where I was going to go. <laughs> so I'm glad we're on the same wavelength here. That's a, that's that's remembered nostalgia from the 90s. Start a horse and come along. <laughs> it started in 1989. Thank you very much. Fair enough. Um, I know this because I have multiple times looked it up on IMDb because I want to watch it again. Um, yeah. So Dude Rancher Montreal, it's just like. What are these options? 
and stands like clearly has zero interest as to his bros in Montreal, especially when Elizabeth gives the, it's very European and only, it's only a two hour flight away explanation for it. (laughs) Um, Stan is apparently not interested in, and then Philip is like dude ranch in Montreal. You can go like dove hunting and whatever else you do on the dude ranch. Dude ranch around. I don't know. (laughs) And And they were sold. (laughs) Sold immediately. And the way that I, to your point, we can tell us is an eighties as opposed to an eighties reference specifically is that if somebody was selling a like trip to Kentucky right now, it would be like bourbon trail. Right. Exactly. Or like camping. Right. Those, that that would, would be the selling point. I don't think I've heard the word dude ranch. Since hey dude. Since hey dude. <laughs> like, no joke. And I'm like in the zeitgeist, so I listen to Harry Styles. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean I think I think, Danielle, that you should write Harry Styles. You should DM Harry Styles Absolutely not. for many reasons. One of them Negative. being you should write a song about a dude ranch. Negative. I'm. I feel very excited about his relationship with Olivia Wilde because I think she's beautiful. Yeah. So no need to no need to slide into those DMs. Yeah, always slide into <laughs> Harry Styles DMs. I think that's his vibe. So, I'm trying to think what else we have here in the bar of nostalgia. Oh, so there's I've got one. Let's let's go there, and then we'll end on a more frivolous one. So the news in the background is like talking about Ariel Sharon. Um, who I think at this time is the defense minister in Israel, right? So he's like part of the Israeli government. And this is right around, so this is what, January 1982? January correct. So this is like either the lead up to or right around the time where the first Lebanon war um, starts, like between where Israel basically like invades Lebanon. And um, there are variety of terrible things that happen, but Sharon is is often blamed for the entire the sort of mm. entire policy and the decisions in order in order to do so. It's something that like really haunted his political career. And Sharon like comes back into the mix later on in like in the two thousands. Yeah. Um and like he's he's like followed by this like pretty immense decision to to uh go into Lebanon. So that's like on in the background. And I, it just was like, it kept being like, Sharon, 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 Sharon. I was like, Oh my God. Like this feels like very present. Yeah. I have nothing to add there except that (laughs) the other eighties nostalgia that we see is the movie they're going to see is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. I, I've never seen it. I've never seen any of the Indiana Jones movies. What? Yeah, I know like he's an anthropology professor and it's it's I for reasons that are clear to the audience, like yeah. probably not my vibe. It's not your vibe. I think Raiders is probably like the most racist of them all. Also, um, I'm aware that this is happening. In yeah. Indiana Jones. I was too young when Raiders came out, and I have like distinct memories of watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when it was like on USA, like channel 17 when I was younger and being just like really scared. Um, and I rewatched, I, and, and then we saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is my favorite of them. Okay. Um, because it's got like 
holy grail implications and like <laughs> i love a link i love fighting nazis and i love a link to arthurian legend sure. so like let's do both of and like i love harrison ford so all of those things yeah but we saw last crusade in at the drive-in in cape cod when i was younger that's a good the goodest setting as any yeah but raiders is like i had never seen raiders until probably like a couple of years ago and it was like on it's on hulu now or it was at the time and raiders is like directly connected to the bible so like and the old testament part of the bible which is the part i like (laughs) (laughs) but i listen if we're gonna do a double feature next time uh i'm in plattsburgh it should be uh vertigo and last crusade okay deal i won't subject you to raiders because it's pretty racist okay Fair enough. I, I, I would sign up for that, and then we'll record a podcast about it, because we might as well derive some content from it for the listeners. Exactly. All right. Exactly. Should we move on to our next segment? Yeah, let's get into Minor Character of the Week. Who is our Minor Character of the Week this week, John? Sadly, our Minor Character of the Week is not given a name. It is listed in IMDb as Uncredited KGB Agent. The person that we're talking about is the person who is operating the, the cable machine, the comms, and the hidden closet at KGB headquarters at the Residentura, who even as he is like typing away on his elaborate, highly encrypted cable (laughs) machine, don't worry, he's got a SIG hanging out like, you know, (laughs) is, is just, it's just there. He's inhaling so much nicotine. It's really impressive. His commitment to the cigarette is lovely great moment of comedic slash and unintentionally comedic acting from Paul Jude Letersky. And we get a second time in which Arkady has to go send a cable. So we see the uncredited KGB agent running the cable slash comms machine. Sadly, sans a butt at this point. I will say like the cigarette hanging out of the mouth in the office also gives like borrowed nostalgia for the unremembered uh, 80s vibes. Yes, and borrowed <laughs> nostalgia for the Soviet Union vibes. Yeah, exactly. Well. Let's exactly. Uh, what a great minor character. I hope we see him again. I hope he gets a name. I don't know if he gets a name or not, but uh, I'm sure there will be more cables that have to be sent back to Moscow. Seems right. <laughs> All right. What what cables are you putting in the dossier this week, Daniel? Oh my God, what a transition. Thank you. First of all, Stan showing up at the travel agency needs to be right in that dossier. Like, he, what is he doing there? Why is he in their place of work? Why didn't he tell them he was coming? Why does he show up with two friends? If Stan was better at his job, I would be like, he's definitely on to them, but he obviously is not. That's the precise dynamic that I didn't understand about this scene. Like, why is this scene there? (laughs) Unclear. Okay. I think it's, like, meant for us as the audience to, like, to be paranoid along with yeah. Elizabeth and like mm-hmm. Philip to a lesser extent. Mostly it's just weird. And, and who are these people? They've, we've never met them. We've never heard of them. Yeah. I don't like this. <laughs> I will say it's another example of <laughs> Philip and Elizabeth are also good at their fake jobs too. Yes. They're good. Listen, they're good at everything. They I mean, they have to rely a lot, a lot on Stavos, but. We'll talk about Stavos more. Who was like, uh, I have something to, I have to talk to you about something. We never go back to that. I'm like, 
what if he's a KGB agent? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Okay. The other thing that's in the dossier is just like Paige. Paige's suspicion and calling to check on the ant, like that is in the dossier because I'm like, so this is going to come to a head at some point. There's too much of it. Great strategy by Paige, though, to call whatever, you know, directory assistance was in the 80s. Paige is a woman after my own heart because I would have done that. Mm-hmm. I like, so. I, I suspect you can't say anything more about this, but I just want to like, I want to flag Paige's suspicions, her heightened suspicion. This is another set of examples. It's just more fodder for the dossier. So I'm, I can't imagine that Philip and Elizabeth are so sloppy. So as to like not have an aunt or something, but also like Elizabeth got shot. So maybe they were sloppy in this, in this moment. Oh, I feel stressed. <laughs> I very, very extremely cannot comment. Okay, we shall see. the The dossier is is open for this one, so Absolutely. we'll we'll see where it goes. Let's get into gloss, please. Where should we start? Um, do you want to start with Oleg as a character? I would love to do that. <laughs> oh yeah, just wilding out in this episode. My favorite, literally my favorite thing was him trying to run game on Nina. <laughs> And Nina was just not having it. Fuck yeah. Fuck, fuck you, Oleg. Like, I believe I texted you this where um, Oleg is like, I'm a feminist. I believe in Mother Russia. Yeah. And I was like, this is both the worst line I've ever heard and also like the best line in the world. Absolutely the best. Um, I I can't wait for one of us randomly, like four years from now, to text each other, don't worry, I'm a feminist. I only work for Mother Russia. Just It'll be like... Non sequitur. It's mostly a non sequitur in the show. It's almost as if like somebody in the writer's room was like, this would be a really funny line. And they're was. like, let's put it in this, ep- in this episode, in this scene. Like, as you pointed out, Oleg is failing to like pick up artist Nina because oh Nina God. is just like not going to stand for it. Nina's like, I have my, I, I am running Stan. You, Oleg, are nothing to me. Like, I'm a triple agent. I get it in every day and get information out of it. You cannot bring me anything. And it's just full of, like, comebacks and put-downs for Oleg. Like, oh, oh I, I know what they're doing in their meeting. They're talking about something that is way more important than your important, uh, you know, mission that you're on. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I, I like the dynamic between him and and Nina because it just allows Nina to, like, step into her power a little bit. Yes. And I'm into that. Step into her power with lower stakes than yes. yeah, her yeah, 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 yeah. exercising her limited – her agency in limited circumstances first. Exactly. 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 I think that's exactly right. Um, what else about Oleg? Just – He's a totally different energy in the office of the Residentura, different relationship to America, different haircut, not the best haircut, Costa. Um, It gets Not the best haircut. Um, But- Not the worst one, though. Not the worst haircut, for sure. Um, Honestly, like, it pains me to say it, but, like, a slightly better haircut than Arcadi. But that's also very infitting with Arcadi's character. Yeah, Arcadi doesn't have time to get a good haircut. Exactly. He's too busy, like, working 18 hours, like, pounding back the, not vodka, but, like, whiskey. Yeah. We discovered last season. Yeah. 
Oh, Oleg. But I mean, just Oleg, I think that he's mostly being played for comic relief in some way right now. Yeah, yeah. Costa Ronan is clearly demonstrating that he can act as comic relief. Yeah. And I'm really excited to see how, as you correctly predicted when we were planning the episode, as he has more of a thematic role in addition, I'm excited to see how you relate to Oleg. Yeah, I can see that there's, like, something coming here. And, like, it's important that he has this banter with Nina, even if it, like like in the moment fails a little bit, right? Like that, that the rapport is important and like the, the self-importance of him, right? Like seems, seems important too. So I'm interested to see how this develops and like what comes of it. Yeah. Including what it's like for Nina to be in a work relationship with somebody who is not Arcati. Yeah. Resident or. Yeah. And like somebody who is, pursuing her who she doesn't seem quite interested in yes right like we got the like nina's also had like other complicated relationships in the residentura um and this one doesn't seem that complicated at least not yet all right what else so if oleg is talking about new wave and blondie and failing to pick up nina Martha is terrified by the news of the murder, is oh, also running a fever of 102, and just drops to Clark that she's going to get a gun for self-protection. And this is the 80s, so, like, there is an established gun culture or whatever, but it's not 2021, right, when it comes to personal ownership of firearms. Yeah, and also, like, the – I think the way that Martha's like, I need it to protect myself. Like, I should be able to protect yeah. myself, like – that that is not like a woman owning the owning a gun in the like DC metro area in the eighties like does not hit in the same way that it would today. Yeah, I'll also point out that if Martha wants to protect herself, like she's got a like the the threat is not random intruder. The threat is Clark. <laughs> Clark is the person from whom she needs protection. Who she doesn't know anything about, but is married to, but who yeah. can't live with her. Yeah. Question mark? Question mark. Martha, be more suspicious. Yeah. Oh, and also put this pen in 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 the office. On the shelf. On the bookshelf. Martha! Wake up! Well, she knows what she's doing with Gad, right? She knows she's spying yeah. on Gad for Clark, yeah? Yes, but she doesn't know why she's Correct. spying on Gad for Clark. And she hasn't, like, probed into... Exactly. Who could possibly want that to happen? She's like, she buys Clark's explanation, which is bullshit. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Another kind of DC quote unquote element to, to glass, I think gloss, I think this week. And that is kind of racist, maybe depiction or stereotypical depiction at the very least of like Elizabeth's in the poor neighborhood with lots of people of color. That is also where they got the drugs that the Congress uh, person's aid almost OD'd on, of course, filled with men of color. Yeah. So. And my like reaction when she, when she went to meet Lucia was like, who's she meeting here? Because Gregory's dead. Yeah. That was like my first thought, which like, I think, the show is is pushing you like to think projects like her black friend, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And like we get projects, drugs, mm-hmm. of course. So, not great. Just, 
All, all the greatest hits here. I think we have one other thing in glass. We promised yeah. it above. What what did you enjoy or not enjoy about the fact that Elizabeth is playing the game of life with her two kids? It like felt a little too on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> right? Why? Like why? So for two reasons. One is like it doesn't feel like Elizabeth is the kind of mom that plays games with her kids. And so this is her like trying too hard. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, in a little a, a little while later, she's going to have this realization that her, her children are actually living human beings. And there's, like, <laughs> something, like, there's it's, like, not tongue-in-cheek enough about that. What about you? Did you have any thoughts about Elizabeth playing life? Yeah, I mean, it just that I was more amused or bemused by it in the sense that they're playing this game where the goal is to like live the most chromonormative American capitalist bourgeois nuclear life. Yeah. Um, and they even they're like, oh, my character just got health insurance. Like that's the thing that's happening. And of course there's the, well, what is the life that Elizabeth envisions her kids to mm-hmm. go on living? This is the exact opposite of the life that Elizabeth has led. And like, yes, it's too cute to make that contrast. Yeah. But I also enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, like, I'll take it. It just was like, this is a wild situation. Yeah. It also is not the only time we get board games in this episode. Correct. Where else do we get them? We get them when Philip is um, at Fred's in the closet and, and like Philip discerns that Fred has purchased all of these board games for Emmett's son, Jared, Mm -hmm. which is like, again, Philip being good at his job, being able to like one plus one equals two in like 30 seconds. Much quicker than I, the first or second or third time uh, picked up on it. (laughs) I watched this episode twice and I was just like, how the A to B on that is like really impressive. Yeah, because it's very easy as I have literally every time I've watched this show, I must admit, been like, oh, Fred is like a collector of memorabilia and board games and like 80s nerd culture. Yeah, or my thought the first time I watched it was, is that a camera? <laughs> ah, good good suspicion. Good instincts. Always suspicion. But yeah, but we get like we get all this this memorabilia and and it's just like another it's another entry in this set of things that Philip again being good at his job but also Fred like wanting to have some kind of human connection yes. even if he can't meet the kids, right? He can like be connected to them. Yeah. And like I I get that. I really do. Yeah. One more question about the board game. So one of yeah. the things that shows up is I don't know if it was a board game or like a piece of memorabilia for The Empire Strikes Back, which mm-hmm. would have come out like a year and a half before this episode takes place. Yeah. Is it too much of a stretch for me to try to go for like an Empire Strikes Back Reagan Evil Empire speech connection? I'll take it. Okay. I'm just going <laughs> to stop there. <laughs> I think that's, honestly, it's the perfect amount. All right. <laughs> There's only one more thing to do in this episode. Uh, we got to go down to the cave. And we got to go down to the cave. You had, a, you had a wonderful idea for the cave, so I turn this over to you. Yeah. So when I was watching this episode, theorists that popped out to me for our cave segment was Foucault. And particularly his idea and his treatment of the panopticon. And really, like, 
thinking about, there are so many shots and, and the theme that sort of comes back again and again in this episode is how paranoid Elizabeth is and that she thinks that she is being watched, right? She pauses outside, the car drives by, she thinks the car, people in the car are watching her. She thinks the construction workers are watching her. Like she keeps like looking around, looking for people who are watching her. We see her walk out of the house multiple times in the span of 10 minutes. She can't even like finish decoding the message from Moscow because like she's like so preoccupied with like the the watching, right? So I think like both that Elizabeth feels like she's being watched, but also that she is like doing this watching. I think the Panopticon, right? Like this, the the central idea of the Panopticon is like, is that feeling of being watched? And then for Foucault that you internalize the gaze. And I think we're seeing all the different sides of it with Elizabeth. And so I would say that, then I think the, the, the other place where we sort of see the Panopticon rear its ugly head is um, the walk-in Dameron in the, um, in the residentura. We don't even, Arcadi doesn't even go in to talk to him, right? He sees him on the screen. He talks to him through the intercom. There's something incredibly carceral about that. Mm-hmm. Like he asks him to stay. He doesn't force him to, but he asks him to stay in the room. And he stays in the room of his own volition and like participates in this. And so I think like for me, there's Foucault like all over this episode. I think you're totally right to do that, and I think you're also right to emphasize the internalization part of it, which is the key element of panopticism for Foucault. Yeah. Right? The disciplinary powers that are enacted by panopticism are – you don't even need an agent to be carrying them out. It's the act of internalization, normalization, the possibility of surveillance that you are always possibly being looked at and you cannot tell whether you actually are. Yeah. And then the way that that is quite literally what Elizabeth is doing, right? She yeah. is acting as if she's being surveilled. And it doesn't matter whether or not anybody is actually surveilling her at that particular moment. Yeah. And the fact that, like, she thinks sh- she's being surveilled impacts every move she makes. And I think that that is, that that is key. It's not about the it's not necessarily about the presence of surveillance, yes. but the, the potential that it is always already happening. What a, what a way to, to wrap up with an always already in a love it. segment. It's, it's a, it's a great journey to the cave. We, listen, Michelle's Michelle's coming back out with us. Yeah. And he's and, definitely like swimming in the, in the pond above ground. One in situation. million percent. He's like, Socrates, do you want to come swimming with me? I would would switch the order there. I think Socrates is like, go join me. Sure. Fair enough. Um, But yeah, he's definitely, he's out of the cave with us, but also I think he'll be back in at some point. He's another, we could probably do a Foucault every episode, but we'll restrain. You're welcome that we don't. (laughs) Seriously. And with that, I think we've come to the end of our episode. I think so. Amazing. So next Tuesday will be a Loki episode in the feed. Lamentus. Lamentus, yes. Episode three. And then the following Thursday will be um, season two, episode three of The Americans, The Walk-In. 
Yes. So clearly we're going to get a little bit more. There's more to the Dameron story okay. and has met the eye here in episode two. Okay. I'm excited about it. Um, as always, thanks to producer Amy. And thank you for joining us on Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time. Go play some racquetball.